You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's a tendency to say, let's not spend new money on old things. Our perspective is that that is not a sustainable path forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at a new case involving cell phone searches at the border. I've got the story of the EU taking on regulation of AI. And later in the show, my conversation with Eric Wenger. He is Cisco's Senior Director for Technology Policy and Government Global Affairs, We're discussing the issue of global network resilience. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you kick things off for us here? So I'm always looking for interesting appeals court cases. Uh, And once again, it was Professor Oren Kerr uh, who alerted me to one over Twitter. This comes from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Hmm. uh, which is in the southern part of the United States, um, largely based in in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. And this case concerns a search of a cell phone at the border. Uh, It is a federal case, United States v. Castillo. So what's interesting here is there's been a divide among courts about the Fourth Amendment standard for uh, searches at the border. Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. There has been a longstanding uh, exception under uh, what's called a special needs doctrine, basically something that's distinct from normal law enforcement operations, uh, that we have a policy interest in protecting the border that goes above and beyond apprehending criminals, and therefore the standard should be lessened. Uh, we've talked about a number of other cases from different circuits where courts have come to differing views about the extent of that border search exception. Right. Just recently we were talking about this. Yeah. I mean, it was literally a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, we had a case that, that went the other way than then this one went. Huh. Uh, but there's really a divide as to how broad these searches can be at the border in the absence of a warrant. Um, these are warrantless searches, which is what makes them particularly controversial. Hmm. So what happened here is based on a suspicion Law enforcement at the border uh, conducted a manual search of a cell phone. Uh, By conducting that manual search, they discovered indications that the person had uh, child pornographic images on his device. And with that information gleaned from the manual search, they went ahead and conducted a forensic search. And through that forensic search, they got all 
different types of evidence, really a treasure trove of uh, prohibited documents. He was uh, arrested and uh, was convicted. Hmm. He is challenging the sufficiency of the evidence against him, saying that this was an overbroad, warrantless search at uh, the border. Hmm. What's interesting about this case is I I think— there's uh, a split among cir- uh, different circuits about the standard for border searches. The Fifth Circuit has not really weighed into that growing dispute. Uh, and just quoting from the opinion here, the, the judge in this case, James Ho, says that in some circuits, the governing standard depends on the extent of the search. Uh, the circuits are divided over whether reasonable suspicion is required for a forensic search of a cell phone at the border. But every circuit to have addressed the issue has agreed that no individualized suspicion is required for the government to undertake a manual border search of a cell phone. Hmm. So the issue here is that the court is holding that they don't need a warrant to conduct a manual search, but that manual search led to evidence that led to a forensic search. So you have a forensic search, which is quite intrusive, without a warrant just because you were able to establish through a manual search that there is this significant amount of evidence. And I'm not sure other circuits are going to be comfortable with tossing aside the forensic search issues here. Hmm. The court is basically saying we don't need to weigh in on the matter of what type of suspicion is required for forensic searches because here we have a manual search. Well, sort of. They did have a manual search, but eventually that led to a forensic search. Uh, And we know from Riley v. California, the Supreme Court holds the cell phone up as uh, kind of a pillar of our personal privacy. It has all of our information on it. Uh, The government generally needs a warrant to search your cell phone, manual or forensic, if one were not at the border. Right. Uh, So the fact that we have a warrantless forensic search here, I think, is is puzzling and is something that we might see attacked at other circuits. Help me understand the difference. Like, why does it matter if the search is manual or forensic? A search is a search, but they're saying no, not there's a difference. There is a difference. I think with a manual search, uh, it's limited and confined in terms of time and scope. Uh, so there's a just a natural bandwidth that customs and border agents have to do manual searches of cell phones. And because of that limitation, I think it's reasonable that when somebody's coming into the country, you can manually check stuff for contraband. A forensic search is far more involved, uh, and it's something that wouldn't have been possible in the pre-cell phone era to get a search that was that intrusive. Hmm. So I think what a forensic search is, is it goes far beyond just one officer or multiple officers unlocking a device, looking around, stooping around for contraband, prohibited files, et cetera, and goes into a really complex search uh, through the bowels of somebody's phone uh, to find that contraband in a way that, uh, you know, Computers can do this better than humans do, in other Hmm. words. Uh, So they'll be better at finding uh, that type of prohibited material. So I think that's really the concern here is that maybe you can have reasonable suspicion, which is below the standard of probable cause, to conduct that manual search. And that's fine, but if that leads to a forensic search because the manual search has turned up some type of evidence, then in effect— you are having a warrantless forensic search of somebody's cell phone uh, at the border. Right. And, and I, I think that 
kind of goes against the spirit of a lot of the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment cases, Riley v. California being one of them, and certainly uh, Carpenter being another one. So if your manual search brings up this evidence, don't you pretty much have a slam dunk to get your warrant? Right. So that's what's uh, another thing that's confusing here is they could have just gone to some type of magistrate judge after they did that manual search to obtain the warrant. Right. Um, That's not really addressed in the case, interestingly. Uh, I'll read what they said here about the forensic search. Uh, all we need to all we need to decide this case is to adopt the consensus view of our sister circuits and hold that the government can conduct manual cell phone searches at the border without individualized suspicion. After all, the manual cell phone search here produced evidence of child pornography. So if that search is valid, it's hard to see how that would not justify the subsequent forensic searches uh, for evidence of, of child pornography. And even the criminal defendant in this case is not. Uh, complaining otherwise. The criminal defendant is saying that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated by both the manual as well as the forensic searches, but he is not claiming that the forensic search was invalid, even if the court finds that the manual search was valid, if Hmm. that makes sense. Uh, So, yeah, I, I, I think the criminal defendant here is really out of luck based on what they found on this uh, manual search, which was not even individualized. They didn't establish any type of probable cause. Uh, and yeah, I think there was an opportunity for the court here to seek a warrant for the forensic search once they had evidence from the manual search. And the fact that they did not, I think, um, is could certainly cut against reasonableness from a Fourth Amendment perspective. Hmm. So uh, does this uh, one <laughs> one more uh, brick in that wall of heading towards the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think we now have we've seen enough uh, federal circuit courts weigh in on this issue that the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in uh, eventually. I keep looking for a border search like a digital border search, forensic border search case to make its way to the Supreme Court. There have been a few potential cases uh, the Supreme Court has declined to take up. But now Hmm. that we have this divide among circuits, and I think what is at this point a really really unclear prevailing standard uh, where you have these distinctions with the manual search and the forensic search, um, and you have a split among uh, federal circuits that I think this is definitely an issue that is ripe for the United States Supreme Court. Hmm. And I suspect uh, that if it's not this case, it's going to be a, a case like this where there's fruit of the poisonous tree at least alleged by a criminal defendant. Maybe one type of legal search led to another warrantless search that violates somebody's Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, I think we could see a very similar case make it to the Supreme Court, and they'd have to decide these issues. I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. You know you know me. I, I love my analogies uh, to try to understand Sometimes things. they're great. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes they're, they're not. All right. All right. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, and I'm trying to, you know, compare this to a search of my home, right? So that the standard would be, listen, it's okay if we send in a couple of police officers to just look around, but if we send a robot in who can, you know, who can just go through everything with a fine-tooth comb, then that's different, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, like, I think— To the- me, like, what? how is it okay at all? How is the manual search— and I guess it's because it's at the border. They're saying that the manual search is okay. Uh, 
it's a lower level cert. I, I, right. I, I, I'm trying to split the difference here, and I guess I'm having a hard time seeing the difference between a, a motivated uh, law enforcement professional, um, you know, would know where what would know where to look and what to look for, and and all that sort of thing. A well trained law enforcement professional, um, and I don't have a problem with that. But as you and I talk about over and over again, get a warrant. Right. Get a warrant. Right. So I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Please. I know you love your terrible metaphors. I love playing devil's advocate. (laughs) I think the judges see this as kind of a plain view doctrine corollary. Where let's say you go into a a house to conduct a manual search with a couple of officers and find a, like, one one image uh, strewn across the floor of child pornography. Right. That might justify you to bring in the uh, the full on SWAT team or whatever I don't know what time <laughs> I don't know what kind of law enforcement force comes in for sure, a child sure. pornography case but yeah. the equivalent you bring in these the days br- who knows yeah you bring in the <laughs> full brigade into the house because you've already established that one image exists right you have probable cause uh, on its prima facie to use the Latin term yeah um, that there's going to be additional evidence there so you bring in the the full force of the law right. Um, I'm not sure if that adequately captures the extent of a forensic search, though. I think, mm -hmm. like, having having a bunch of robots come into your house uh, who can open drawers and, you know, scan closets and scan scan the uh, insides of somebody's walls, I think that's kind of the better comparison. Yeah. I mean, so, again, you know, a, a police officer comes to someone's front door knocks on the door, the person opens the door, and behind the person is stuck to the refrigerator with a magnet is an objectionable image that the police officer can see from the front door. Right. Now we got a reason to go further. But I would say now we have the, now we have the justification for our warrant. Right. Uh, I think that probably should have been the case, mm-hmm. uh, but I think— from the perspective of law enforcement, it's a time and resources issue. Mm. Uh, you already know that there's contraband here. That means you've established probable cause. Right. It would be cumbersome, especially uh, with the backlog of cases that we have at the border, to get this in front of a judge. It would be great if they could get it in front of the judge, but from their perspective, they want to be able to prosecute this case in a court of law. Yeah. Uh, and they realize <laughs> that they probably will be able to do that without going and getting a warrant for this additional material because, if this makes sense, they have already established probable cause that that material exists. Right, right. So the Fourth Amendment applies unless we're too busy. Right. Yeah, that seems to be the <laughs> excuse of the day these days. Okay. That- <laughs> I mean, we're too busy and we're underfunded. So, yeah, it's just so hard to, to get in front of a judge. I get it. I mean, you have the evidence, so right. it might seem cumbersome at that point to be like, "Do we have to put together a whole file to get in front of a magistrate judge?" When we know we're going to get, we know the we're going to find it. So yeah. why, you know, yeah. why would we put in the effort Let's to do stay that? practical and yeah, sort of meanwhile here in the real world, this is what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, I Mm. think the Supreme Court might see it differently based on what they said in Carpenter, where they focused on the intrusiveness of the search itself. So Mm -hmm. its breadth, its depth, its revealing nature, um, you know, all of those those things certainly qualify when we're talking about forensic searches of of devices. And so that's where I think the Supreme Court might might, uh, depart if we think that they're going to adhere to their own Carpenter precedent, which is also doubtful because— 
Um, that was a 5-4 decision, and we have new justices. It's been five years since that decision was handed down. We have oh, right. three new justices. Right. So there's no guarantee that the current Supreme Court would see Carpenter the same way. Yeah. Good times. Good times. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, just not a lot of clarity in this area of the law. No, it, there isn't. There isn't. But I guess that's, I mean, this, this is just the way it works. I right? would highly recommend just not bringing over contraband items on a device uh, if you are crossing the border. That's that would, true. That would be my recommendation. Right. Crooks are stupid. <laughs> That's why they're crooks. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, oh, well how, how is this going to play out then? Where does this go from here? I mean, is this is this is this a done deal, or are we likely to see an appeal here? What, what, what's next? So this was a three judge panel of uh, the Fifth Circuit. I'll note that the three judges here are all, I believe, Republican appointees, including some of some big names in the legal world. Mm. Uh, Leslie Southwick being one of them. James Ho was a uh, Trump appointee who was highly touted by uh, the political right. Mm. So I would suspect that the defendant will appeal this and and um, try and get this in front of the Supreme Court with a writ of certiorari. And um, most litigants are not successful at accomplishing that goal, but maybe this litigant uh, will be different. The litigant could also petition for a hearing en banc uh, from the full panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. I think that is a futile effort because... Um, the full panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is only slightly uh, to the left of Attila the Hun <laughs> in terms of political uh, orientation. Okay. So I so, don't think so. They're likely to track along what's already been done. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the yeah. Supreme Court is the avenue. Um, this defendant will probably file a writ of certiorari, and uh, we'll see what the Supreme Court says. Wow. All right. Well, keep an eye on that one. For Fascinating. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, my story this week has uh, seen a lot of coverage in a lot of different places. Uh, I, I happen to be pointing to an article here from the Atlantic Council. Uh, and this is uh, basically about how the European Parliament, which is the legislative branch of the European Union, they passed a draft law last week uh, that's going to uh, restrict and add transparency requirements to the use of artificial intelligence in the EU. Um, first of all, I think it's important to point out that things work differently in the EU than they do here in the States. So the fact that this uh, law was passed doesn't mean that it's been put into effect. It means that it goes for debate now. Right. Right. I, uh, not to go all poli sci, but there's the European Commission, which has a uh, different authority than the European Parliament, and they have to accede to the law. So uh, hopefully they understand it. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> Right. So this article in The Atlantic draws on uh, a bunch of different experts in this area for commentary. So it's really interesting to see different points of view. Um, there's one that I'll highlight here. Uh, they point out, they say, there are numerous significant aspects of this law, but there are two and a half that really stand out. The first is establishing a risk-based policy where lawmakers identify certain uses as presenting unacceptable risk. For example, social scoring, behavioral manipulation of certain groups, and biometric identification by groups including police. Second, generative AI systems would be regulated and required to disclose any copyrighted data that we use to train the generative model, and any content AI outputs would need to carry a notice or label that it was created with AI. Uh, it's also interesting what's included as guidance for Parliament is to ensure that AI systems are overseen by people, are safe, transparent, traceable, non-discriminatory, and environmentally friendly. 
Um, so there's a lot going on here. I, I think at a high level, uh, once again, we see the EU taking the lead on a thorny privacy issue, right? Or in right, as they've done many security. times in the past. Yeah. Um, and I can't quite account for, I mean, I, I could try to account, but there are just differences in the way our federal government works, uh, polarization, partisanship, inertia that just isn't as uh, prevalent in either state legislatures or the European Parliament. But it is absolutely noteworthy that Europe, and not even a state within the United States, uh, is taking the first uh, bite of the apple of this. I'll note that um, there has been debate and and some proposed regulation at the state level uh, dealing with AI, but this is the first that really tackles it in a comprehensive way in the post-iterative uh, AI chat GPT era. Uh, so it's certainly significant in that respect. I should point out that the the, the, um, the quote I just uh, read was from Stephen Teal, who is a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center. Um, so this goes in for debate, and certainly there's going to be some folks in law enforcement and perhaps industry who take issue with this. But right. The industry seems particularly unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, ChatGPT and its founder basically said, if this proposal becomes law, it's going to be very hard for us to operate in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, they always say that type of thing as a threat. And sometimes the European Parliament takes that threat seriously. Sometimes they don't. Um, but <clears throat> it certainly would put a kibosh on a lot of the functionality of ChatGPT. It would make... Um, iterative J- uh, iterative AI just far more cumbersome to produce, especially with a requirement there be uh, a warning label on it saying that this was uh, this image or this text was generated by AI. Um, my other issue with this is, and I just haven't really done the research on it. Yeah. Uh, the risk-based approach. I know this is something that's been talked about at the state level, that you evaluate how much regulation there needs to be based on the use of the AI itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So certain things that entail higher risks, like things that might uh, sway voters to influence elections, um, which that things that suggest post photos and videos that people see on social networks, those types of high risks, high stakes Uh, uses of AI would merit greater regulation. I guess my issue with it, and I'm I'm wondering your thoughts on it, is unless we can have a really dynamic process where we're constantly identifying what these high-risk areas are, it just runs runs the risk of being outdated relatively quickly. Mm. Uh, Because it's hard to see two or three years down the line what a a high-risk use of AI is going to be. It perhaps could be something that's just not on our radar right now. Yeah. Um, So defining that in a statute or a regulation just might end up being limiting. Um, that would that would be my uh, first interpretation and, and first criticism of it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it certainly holds promise. I I like that you're taking a scalpel and, and not a butcher knife at uh, AI because there are some uses that are not controversial and don't uh, present a, a high risk and there are some that are. I think it instinctively makes sense to go after those areas where there is a high risk. I just think it's something that's hard to define. Uh, Probably many different people in good faith have different definitions of uh, what that high risk would be. So that would be uh, something that certainly stood out to me uh, in this regulation. Yeah. I mean, is it like that old chestnut of, you know, uh, pornography, I know it when I see it, that 
and but but to define it is challenging. Yeah, and that which came from a famous Supreme Court case is pretty discredited because that's a poor way of defining something <laughs> right. in the eyes of the law. Right. Um, it is something that's kind of subjective, uh, and I just think that there could be something that presents itself um, several years down the line that is high risk that hasn't been identified. Uh, in EU regulation, and then uh, we're either confined in this statute or we're just constantly changing the definition, which would be confusing, particularly for uh, compliance. I mean, when you have these big U.S. companies already saying, I don't know about this regulation, we might have to pull chat GPT from the European Union because it's too complicated, it's too burdensome. Mm-hmm. Imagine having this uncertainty about what qualifies as high risk. Hmm. That's just going to make uh, the poor attorneys sitting there twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out um, what is legal and what is illegal. So <laughs> I, I think that certainly presents uh, an element of risk for the industry. Are we doomed to be reactive with something like this? I, I mean, obviously, this is an attempt to be proactive, but is the d- does does the definition have to be formed by on a case by case basis? Yeah, I mean, by nature, it is always reactive because we have to understand the threat before we try and regulate that threat or, or legislate uh, on that threat. Right. So I get it from that perspective. This is as forward-looking as any legislative body could be. I mean, we're only about six months into what I would consider the new wave of AI. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that we've it, that the European Union has advanced this type of uh, regulation already is pretty impressive. I mean, that's not usually the timeline we see either in our uh, legislatures here in the United States or in our legal system. It usually Mm -hmm. takes much longer. But yeah, I mean, it is going to end up being reactive just because, uh, you know, we're not talking about titans of the industry, visionaries here in the European Parliament who are always looking for the next next best thing, the next greatest thing in tech. Mm -hmm. These are career bureaucrats. <laughs> uh, those are at least the ones who are going to be making the decision for the European Commission. Uh, so I think their baseline knowledge of any of these issues is relatively limited. So by nature, it's going to have to be reactive to what the controversy is. Right. Um, and that's just one of the the problems of trying to regulate this stuff in the first place. And we don't know where it's going to go. It's t- such early days. As you mentioned, we, we don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know the areas of our day-to-day lives that it could affect. Um, You look at any of the other big online social media phenomenons, the Facebooks, the Twitters, any of those, YouTube, uh, you know, who could have predicted the influence they would have on the world, on society? Uh, Imagine trying to regulate them early on. Um, And I guess, you know, there is, or, or there has been this, notion of staying hands-off in the early days of new technologies. Right. And I think perhaps this is a recognition, or do do you think that this is a recognition from the European Parliament that looking at some of the other hands-off approaches, well, that didn't go so well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, things so. get out of control quickly. <laughs> right. I mean, 
Right. When we're talking about AI, we're talking about potentially severe consequences if we don't get a handle on this. Mm-hmm. Um, unchecked dissemination of false information. Um, you know, I, I know it from the academic perspective. So uh, cutting against the legitimacy of academic endeavors mm-hmm. um, by people cheating on tests, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, potentially displacing a lot of workers, um, not to mention implications on defense, national security. So this is really, really important stuff, and we can't afford, and I think this is what the European Union would say, we just can't afford to wait on this to see how the technology develops. As you've said, they have tried that method in the past, and things get way out of hand before the regulators can come in and try to address the problem. Right. So I think it's really uh both worthwhile and noteworthy that they're getting out in front of this. Yeah. Um, and I suspect that this is going to be ratified and, and put into law by the end of this calendar year. Right, right. They are definitely on a fast track here. And this article points out also that it's, it very much tracks the way GDPR did in terms of the, the fines. Uh, there, there's, there is a big stick that they have here to for compliance. You know, we're talking about... Uh, uh, some of these are up to like 7% of worldwide annual global revenue. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the same uh, GDPR approach. I think yeah. it's worked decently well with the GDPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's enough of a disincentive that it's at least going to make these companies worry. Uh, it's also going to make them lobby because there's enough money at stake for them that mm. they want to have their hand in forming these regulations and defeating regulations uh, that they think are going to hurt the industry. Right. Uh, so it's wise on the part of the European Union to um, shoot high on these regulatory fines because then uh, you can kind of force industry to come to the table yeah. and actually engage in some of these issues. Yeah. All right. Well, it's fascinating. I'll see how this one plays out. Like, you know, if, if they're aiming for the end of the year to, uh, to settle this, that's, uh, that is a fast track for sure. It oh, certainly did. Oh. Oh, oh, if we could do such things here. It certainly is, but who knows what uh, the world of AI will look like in November slash December of 2023. Yeah. It's moved so quickly. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And, of course, we would love to hear from you if there is something you would like us to discuss on the show. You can email us. It's caveat at n2k.com. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. (laughs) 
Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Wenger. He is Cisco's Senior Director for Technology Policy and Government Global Affairs. Uh, we were discussing the issue of global network resilience, and, and particularly uh, as devices uh, age and uh, extend past their useful life, what are the best ways to handle that? Really fascinating conversation. Here's Eric Wenger. First off, I would say that we have made a dramatic change in how we use our networks. And some of this was accelerated by the experience that we had during the past few years, but the trends were already in flight. And we have pivoted in a way that we are moving from fixed perimeter networks. You can imagine students or workers sitting at desks with desktop computers that are wired to a network, and then they access data and applications internally. When they go and need an internet-based resource, they cross through a firewall, which allows for the traffic to be examined. And we have seen a dramatic change where people are using personal devices, unsecured internet connections, sometimes open Wi-Fi, to access data and applications in the cloud without ever touching the perimeter of the network. So that is a, a, a real a real change, and it presents new challenges, obviously, for security professionals to figure out how best to address those kinds of challenges. In addition, we're seeing an aging of the infrastructure, the technology that we have relied upon for years, decades, essentially sitting in a closet without being touched, is presenting new security challenges that um, require new attention. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really fascinating reality that we face these days. You know, there's that old saying that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But as new vulnerabilities are discovered with old hardware, I guess that adage just hasn't stood the test of time. Right. So we have the technology environment itself is changing. People are layering on new services and capabilities on top of existing infrastructure. We have threat actors that are adapting their behaviors to what they see work. And we have uh, the dynamic nature of the threat environment itself. And so when you put all these three things together, you can say that the technology, as you said, Dave, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That suggests that you should just leave it alone. It seems to be working and let's not touch it. But the environment that we're operating in from a threat perspective requires us to actually have some fixed and focused attention and investment of resources. And so it may seem that that device in the closet, again, uh, should be left alone. And if I um, make any decisions about changing it, updating it, securing the configurations, patching it, then I potentially introduce new, introduce new risk because any change to the environment could cause it to potentially fail, and I don't want to do that. And I also um, am taking something that has a completely amortized cost and then introducing new ongoing operating expenses associated with that. And so there's a tendency to say, let's not spend new money on old things. Our perspective is that that is not a sustainable path forward. Well, what are the options that folks have available to them then? What sort of things can be done in order to come at this problem? One thing that we see is that the adoption of cloud-based resources 
can provide some significant security benefits in this this regard, especially if somebody else might be better positioned to manage the security risk than you. And so if you look at the Hafnium attack from a couple years back, you had servers that were being maintained on-premise inside of, uh, in this case, it was exchange servers, um, but it could be, you know, any kind of on-premise resource where there was no effort being maintained to patch and secure those servers. And the simple act of taking some of those things that are running inside of an organization and then lifting it and putting it in the hands of a cloud provider who actually has um, expertise and dedicated resources to maintain security may significantly improve the posture of any organization. So I think that's one thing to think about is what what do I have the resources to maintain and secure on-premises and what should I actually turn over to somebody else and rely upon their expertise instead? What about the hardware that I have on site still? You know, how do I how do I go about the the proper care and feeding of that stuff? Well, the first thing I think you need to do is to figure out what you have. Mm. If you don't know what technology is running inside of your environment, then it is essentially impossible to make sure that you're securing it properly. So, conducting an in-depth audit of the technology that's running inside your network and understanding what you have, I think is is clearly step 1. The second step is to then assess what of the technology that I have is end of life, end of support, where there's no further patching that is available for it. Because if I'm running technology inside my network and it's exposed to the outside world, to that dynamic threat environment that we talked about, to the adaptable threat actors, then if there's no way for me to continually update that technology on a going forward basis, then I have to think about, can I isolate it or segment it in a way that then puts security resources capable of, of um, addressing dynamic threats um, in between that device and the outside world? And if not, then I really should give serious consideration to taking it out of service. Is there a, a point of diminishing returns with, with old hardware? I mean, is it, is it reasonable to say as an organization, you know, we will have no servers that are older than X number of years just as a matter of policy? I don't think that there's a fixed timeline that you put on the use of technology. The question really is, is there a plan in place to make sure that it can be continued to use, be used in a safe way? So, for example, there is medical equipment that you see inside of doctor's offices that is tied to generic computing equipment, laptops Mm. and desktop equipment, things like that. They run oftentimes commercial consumer grade operating systems, sometimes Windows 95, Windows 7, whatever it is. (laughs) Right, right. And it may be the case that that equipment can't really be replaced with newer operating systems because, and we just actually, this was something we discussed on a, I guess back and forth between us by our correspondence on an earlier show. Yeah. Um, there, there may be times where you say, um, I need to patch this in order to be able to make sure that it's continued to, it continues to operate in a dynamic threat environment. There may be some of that technology you just say, I'm going to take it offline and I'm going to use it in a mode where it is not connected to anything else. 
the question first is, do I know what I have and do I have a plan for dealing with it? If I, uh, if I look at it and say, this is critical, I have to have it, and I can operate it in a mode that is disconnected, then maybe I have a reasonable plan for continuing to use it after it's, it's no longer supported. But if it's connected to a dynamic threat environment, that's really the, the question, uh, the, the point you have to ask yourself, can I safely continue to use this technology in the mode that it's currently connected? And if there is no plan for support, then that's the line that I, I would say you shouldn't cross. Mm-hmm. What about putting something in between that device and the open internet? Then, if you know, if you have something that's a has critical functionality within your organization, but you're concerned about its security, is that a viable solution as well to put up some some walls, some barriers between it and the rest of the world? I mean, I think that that's the, the question that you have to ask yourself. The tendency that humans have is to connect things, and so. Uh, anything that can be connected will be connected. And so, you know, if you look at, for instance, the um, the attacks on the uh, Natanz nuclear reactors in, in Iran, it's fascinating because those centrifuges were designed to be operated in an offline mode. And the attacker's software was so effective that it actually, using sneaker net, was able to get inside of the boundaries of the of the uh of this closed facility and then come back out again to the internet. <laughs> so, mm. so uh, the assumption that, that something can be effectively disconnected from the internet, I think is, is something that needs to be thought about very carefully, but assuming that you understand the risk and you know that you're operating with a technology that cannot be patched and you've decided that it is being operated in an offline mode or with some intermediate technology from the network that then provides augmented protection to take care of and to step in where the device can't protect itself, then that may be a reasonable decision. If you can't do those things, then again, you need to say to yourself, this is something that I potentially should take out of service and replace it with something that is being currently supported by. So again, it's, I don't think the answer is there's a fixed period of time. The question is, do I know what I have? Do I have a plan to protect it? And if I can't, adequately protect it and I can't segment it or, or I can't isolate it, then I need to, to move on. And even though you know, it may seem like it's cheaper to continue to operate that technology that, again, is just sort of sitting in the closet, nobody's touching it, it doesn't cost me anything, mm-hmm. but there may be a technical debt that's accruing off books. And it, so it may seem like that there's no cost associated with that technology because I'm not spending anything on a regular basis, but I have this shadow cost that is, that is accruing and eventually I'm going to have to pay that debt. And and to what degree is that the key to making your case to the powers that be within an organization? I mean, do you do you come at this from a risk assessment point of view to your to your board of directors for example? I think we all have a role to play here, right? The developers of the technology have a role to explain what period of time they support the tech, the uh, the technology that they have supplied to make it easy for customers to understand where there are known exploitive vulnerabilities, what secure configurations and mitigations are available, how to identify technology that needs patching, and to make it as easy as possible to patch. The operators of the technology, again, need to understand that they have a shared role in managing risk. And you can't, again, just sort of set and forget a technology that is exposed to a dynamic th- threat environment and expect that forever it's going to be 
cost-free, even if I'm not expending money on a regular basis. And then the government, I think, has an important role here too, to model the kinds of behaviors that it hopes to see from regulated entities, to share information about risk, and then to provide the right kinds of incentives so that those who are building technologies and those who are deploying technologies are helping to manage those risks in a reasonable way. Because, you know, this is a shared environment after all. And so therefore, things that are happening, my, my neighbor's house can't be on fire without me being at some risk as well, too. Mm-hmm. Where do you suppose we're headed here? I mean, is it your uh, perception that word is getting out about this, that these are policies that folks are adopting? We think it was an important development, what happened on April 18th, and you did a, a special advisory about this on on your show. Um, and so there was a joint advisory that came out from the U.S. government. It was CISA, FBI, NSA, right. um, in concert with the U.K.'s National Cybersecurity Center. And it highlighted the existence of known exploitive vulnerabilities in, in this case, it was some um, poorly managed Cisco technology, but it could happen from any of our competitors or peer companies. And so what we're trying to do is to say, you know, we can each take turns having our technology that we put out years ago that, that is, is no longer being patched by the user of the technology, that it could continue to generate headlines and we could point fingers at each other. But instead, we think it's actually more important to gather everybody around the table and to start having a, a conversation that involves the developers of the technologies, the users of the technologies, and the and the government uh, to figure out how we identify what is out there, what patches can be deployed, and frankly, what technology is beyond its useful life and can no longer be secured and needs to be taken out of service. And um, and so that's part of the reason that we're trying to get out here and talk about this today is to is to make sure that we are pulling all the, the stakeholders together and having an important conversation about how to manage this risk and, uh, and how to work together. Eric, I seem to recall back in April, we covered uh, an update that you all had sent out some information to your customers that related to this. What can you share about that? Right. So there was a joint advisory that went out from a number of different government agencies in the U.S. It was uh, CISA, FBI, NSA, and then in the U.K. government, it was the National Cybersecurity Center. And then Cisco put out an alert at the same time. What's really interesting about this is that the vulnerability that's the subject of the alert dates back to something that was discovered and published by Cisco in 2017. And at that point, we put out a patch that went along with the vulnerability as well. And a year later, in 2018, our Cisco Talos threat intelligence team put out a supplemental advisory that alerted customers to the fact that there were active known exploits of this vulnerability. And then 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, now we see this alert that comes out from the from governments talking about not only is there a known exploitive vulnerability, but something that is being exploited by their telling uh, from state-sponsored actors. And so one of the challenges that we're trying to figure out is how do we engage in a, uh, a robust, meaningful dialogue that runs across all the key stakeholders, the vendors, and there are similarly situated vendors to us that are experiencing the same sort of dynamic, 
to the customers who feel like that they may be overwhelmed with information about vulnerabilities and the things that they're expected to do to patch them and to configure and maintain systems, and then to the government to uh, push information out about where attention should be uh, put, given the fact that we have scarce resources for securing these kinds of systems. And so uh, what we're hoping to do is to pull together a dialogue that runs across all these key stakeholders. And uh, and if folks out there uh, want to engage with us in that conversation, they, they should feel free to reach out. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's certainly outside my wheelhouse mm. uh, of expertise. So it was just a really interesting interview. Um, we all know that there are risks of legacy devices, legacy networks. Uh, but to think of it in a, in a really macro perspective as to how this is going to affect the private sector, governments, um, and how we can address it, I just thought I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, and we appreciate uh, Eric Wenger uh, taking the time for us. Uh, really interesting insights there. Now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can write us an email at caveat at n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Caveat are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.